today on Ag News Daily. You know, breaking through and seeing for myself how to use them, because if, if you don't use them right, I mean, yeah, there, there are some horror stories of, you know, when you plant uh, corn in a rye, if you don't have that nitrogen there for that corn plant, Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr. And it is a Friday indeed. We're talking to a great farmer that you found, Ashton, here in just a little bit. Eric Miller, talking about cover crops, some of the most innovative things I've heard from farmers in quite some time. But uh, before we get to that, I have a ask to make. I am heading to Bozeman, Montana next week and, and Yellowstone. Uh, National Park. And I've never been to this part of the country. So if any of our listeners have been and have suggestions on things we just absolutely have to do while we're out there, please hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. That's my personal ask for today. Delaney, I am so jealous that you get to go out there. I decided it's a long weekend. My birthday is actually on Labor Day this year. So I have it off from work. So I figured heck, let's go on a little trip. And, you know, with COVID going on, that's probably one of the best places to go because you can social distance, go hiking, all that fun stuff. So I thought that would be great. Well, happy early birthday. And Thank I you. Really yes. hope that you take a lot of pictures because I know that that is a beautiful part of the country. Yes, it is. Pictures look gorgeous. So I'm super excited to go. Well, I am super excited to share this piece of news that I found this morning. Four of the nation's leading cooperatives serving agriculture and communities across rural America announced that they are partnering to support the American Red Cross in the wake of the derecho storm that hit the Midwest earlier this month. CHS, CoBank, Farm Credit Services of America, and Landa Lakes Incorporated will together donate $200,000 to aid relief efforts in that impacted region. The American Red Cross has been providing food, water, shelter, and other relief services since the storm hit. And in Iowa and Illinois, the organization has provided more than 50,000 meals, distributed nearly 20,000 relief items, and provided more than 1,900 overnight stays in hotels or shelters. And Red Cross volunteers and disaster workers continue to provide aid and comfort to those that are unable to return to their homes due to damage from that storm and ongoing power outages. So I'm really excited that these companies have come together and they're going to donate that aid and hopefully can get out to those rural parts of America and, and help them. Yeah, that is really, really encouraging. I think it's also encouraging, as I mentioned yesterday on the podcast, it does seem like the government is going to step in in some shape or form to help those folks that were impacted by now, of course, Hurricane Laura, as well as that derecho storm that swept across parts of Iowa and Nebraska. But it did appear that other folks besides just Secretary Purdue were making comments about the CFAP payment. We saw Deputy Agriculture, Deputy Secretary Steve Sensky uh, was in Minnesota today and was going to be delivering some good news about farm programs and further farm aid. And so, as we know, Purdue also indicated that a CFAP payment will be coming around here sometime after Labor Day. So we'll continue to keep our ear to the ground there. 
I was talking to a farmer today on Twitter. We were chatting a little bit about, you know, this potential aid that we could see. And I think he hit the nail on the head here when he said, you know, there have been a lot of disasters going on. And he was really curious about what federal disaster relief will actually bring because he said, you know, we could pump in money into these farmers or into these small economies, smaller rural economies. But until that infrastructure gets rebuilt, those businesses get rebuilt, it's going to be hard to actually see those small and local economies be able to thrive. So I don't know, it's going to be a tough year here as we, uh, head into the rest of 2020, especially since it's an election year that always adds an interesting twist to things as well. Yeah, I tell you what, 2020 has certainly been a very interesting year and I don't expect it to slow down anytime soon. One thing keeps happening happening after the other. But in other news, China has suspended imports of beef from the Australian firm John D. Warwick after it detected a banned substance in some of the company's products. And the General Administration of Customs said in a statement late yesterday, it had requested a full investigation and a report to China within 45 days from the Australian side after it detected chloramethanol, a a banned substance in beef wine from the company. I am no scientist, so that pronunciation was not the best, but... China said on Friday earlier today that this suspension of beef imports from an Australian firm is an individual case and it has nothing to do with relations between the two countries. So definitely going to keep an eye out for that report and see where this banned substance came from and uh, follow up on that. That sounds great, but We did get some good news to counter that today. We saw the U.S. government and industry officials are applauding a new announcement by the Taiwanese president that came out earlier announcing their country will be lifting restrictions that limit imports of U.S. beef and pork. Both the Taiwanese and U.S. government described the announcement as leading to greater economic ties between the two countries. And so the U.S. uh, State Department and USDA made comments today saying, you know, that this is a really vibrant part of Eastern Asia, and they are excited to work with Taiwan consumers because they like to consume high-quality U.S. agricultural products. So the U.S. is already a key supplier to Taiwan as far as beef imports go, but the country limits U.S. imports to products from, or excuse me, they limit U.S. imports for cattle that are 30 months old or younger. So they've got a a little bit of an age ban there as well as some restrictions on ractopamine and some other um, products that we use in the feed supplements. But they are lifting those restrictions as well as a few others. So good news for our U.S. livestock producers. That certainly is good news. And we certainly need good news right now. But other than that, Delaney, I'm all out because it has been a little bit of a slower news day for me. Do you have anything else before we jump into the markets? I do have just one other quick story here, a little follow-up. As far as the RFA is concerned, we saw EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler was in 
I believe, a public hearing yesterday and was pressed a little bit harder about the renewable volume obligations for 2021. As a frame of reference here, usually that those RVOs need to be released to the public so they have time for public comment and all of that stuff by the end of June in order to make that happen by the November 30th deadline to implement for 2021. And that has not happened in this case. So we're kind of at a standstill here to see what gets implemented for 2021. But folks on both sides of the issue, both oil and ethanol folks, are pressing hard here to figure out what is going to be happening with the renewable volume and blending obligations for 2021. And it's also interesting to note, of course, that the presidential election is just 69 days away. Excuse me, seven, 68 days away. This story was from yesterday afternoon, but um, 68 days away. And this has been a big issue that has made rural America divided when it comes to supporting President Trump or not. So Yet to be seen what happens ahead of that election, but we are going to continue keeping an eye on this story. Absolutely, Delaney. But I am ready to jump into the markets for now. What do you say? You know what? I sure am as well, because we are continuing to watch soybeans steam head full steam ahead. We are hitting some highs from last summer. Here we are, uh, you know, a few weeks out to a month out from harvest, and we are seeing grains move full steam ahead. Starting off here in the corn contract, the September contract closed up just a penny and a half to end at 3.45 and three quarters. New crop corn closed up three quarters of a cent today to end at 3.59 and a quarter. In the soybean pits, huge moves today as the September contract closed up 14 and a quarter cents to end at 951 and a half. The November put on nine cents today to close at 951 even. In the wheat pits, the September contract closed down just three and a quarter cent, three and three quarters cent, excuse me, to close at 538 and three quarters of the December. Shed two cents on the day to close at 548 and three quarters. In the livestock pits, Weakness continued into today as the October live cattle contract gave up $1.25 to close at $104.90. The December shed $0.85 cents to close at $108.50. In the feeder cattle pits, the September contract closed $1.20 lower to close at $140.02. The October down $0.97.5 cents to close at $140.17. Lean hogs were not excited by today's Taiwanese announcement as the October contract climbed lower by $2.07 to end at $53.65. The December contract shed $1.37.5 to close at $55.20. And taking a look over at our Class 3 dairy futures, the September contract rallied $0.22 today to close at $15.69. The October up $0.26 to close at $17.61. Without further ado, let's kick it off to our Friday conversation with Eric Miller. Today on the podcast, we have Eric Miller, a farmer in Northeast Iowa. Eric, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, Eric, it has been a couple of weeks since you and I first started talking, and I have really wanted to get you on the podcast, so I'm glad that we were finally able to make it happen. But it sounds like you have been super busy within the past couple of weeks, so why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit about what you've been doing on your operation? 
Yeah, just uh, been pretty tied up last few weeks. Had a pretty big field day last week. It's actually my first field day I've ever hosted. Uh, it was with the city of Dubuque and the water conservation. Uh, they're working together with the county doing a nutrient reduction exchange. And so they're working with local farmers to kind of incentivize them to use practices to, you know, um, improve water quality and try to improve the um, nutrient runoff uh, on our on our fields in the county here. So it's pretty exciting to work with them and the fact that they're willing to work with those farmers uh, instead of, you know, the other way around of, you know, kind of uh, button heads with us per se. So it, it's pretty cool that they're taking a different approach um, versus other cities with the farmers. And, and I'm excited to be a part of it and show some really cool options that farmers can use to, you know, help that urban relationship in the rural communities. Yeah. And looking at your Twitter account, you are doing some really cool stuff. Tell us a little bit more about some of the innovations that you're trying on your farm. Yeah. Um, oh, it's, I guess I, it all started, you know, I started farming back in 2009 and uh, things were pretty good. I went through, you know, in 2012, obviously everything just kind of skyrocketed and, and uh, you know, had a few good years there, but uh you know, just in the last few years, I've had a real hard time with the input costs staying as high as they were. And I just was looking at every option to try to improve my bottom line. Um, and you can't just go cutting out inputs because you're going to start sacrificing, you know, yields and, uh, you know, storage ability with quality. And uh, I was just trying to figure out what to do. Um, and my uh, my sister actually... Uh, she's an agronomist and she was really pushing cover crops on me and I was pushing back pretty hard. I, I really didn't want anything to do with them. And she uh, drugged me to a, a field day up by West Union and they, uh, they were talking about some interseeding and a local farmer was interseeding cover crops and reducing input. And I ended up talking to him after the meeting, and he actually invited me to his farm. It was uh, Lawrence Steinlage, as uh, some people know. Um, he's pretty well known in the cover crop community. But he gave me a, gave me a personal um, presentation through his PowerPoint. And, you know, at the time, I had no idea who the guy was. But looking back, it was, it was quite an opportunity. And it completely changed the way I look, you know, at, at farming and and trying to use the latest and greatest technology to get an edge when all I really had to do is kind of step back and, and look at the big picture of, of just using nature um, like he was. And that's kind of where the snowball started. And then I started using cover crops and to really maximize, you know, we're so far north, it's hard to get anything to grow in the fall. And then I'm also so busy in the combine, I really can't get out and get anything planted and interseeding throughout the summer, uh, about late June is when I go out and I interseed these cover crops in between the corn rows. So it really opens up an opportunity for me to take that free time I have in the summertime and get that cover crop established early enough where I'm getting a lot of value out of it. So that's, that's how it all started. That's a really neat story. Uh, yeah, I think we've had Lauren on the podcast before. I'm trying to think how long ago that's been, but it's neat to follow mm -hmm. what he does as well. But 
You mentioned something there that I think a lot of farmers can relate to. And that was that you were dragging your feet about starting to use cover crops. Why do you think that farmers are resistant to using cover crops? And what have you seen in your experience that changes your perspective on that? You know, there's a lot of a lot of misconceptions about using them. Quite a few. Um, a lot of stereotypes that follow along with using them. And that was the hardest thing was just, you know, breaking through and seeing for myself how to use them. Because if, if you don't use them right, I mean, yeah, there there are some horror stories of, you know, when you plant uh, corn in a rye, and if you don't have that nitrogen there for that corn plant, you know, when that rye residue is breaking down, it can rob a lot of nitrogen from that corn plant. So you really got to be careful with some of these cover crops on on how you place them and how you use them. And so I obviously have been doing a lot of research to not make those mistakes. You know, I really can't afford to. Um, and it's been working out pretty good so far. I've not, I'm actually seeing a, a slight increase in yields versus traditional 30 inch. Um, I've cut way back on my herbicides. You know, I'm not using any, using any residual herbicides and um, fertilizer too. I'm doing. Uh, I'm on my second year of 60-inch corn, and I'm doing a nitrogen trial with the Iowa Soybean Association right now in this field. And I just did 20-foot strips across the entire field with 140 units applied versus 220 units applied nitrogen, and that's a corn on corn, second-year corn. And I haven't seen any differences all year until just lately. If you take the drone up high enough, you can barely make out the lines. But the real story will be when I combine with the yield monitor is going to say if, how far I can cut my nitrogen back. So, Eric, in doing that research for your cover crops, what have you found is the most useful cover crop, I would say, or the, the best to work with? And how, how many cover crops are you actually working with? So this year, I'm actually doing a 17 species mix. And it's mostly legumes because what I'm trying to do is is fix nitrogen. So I'm using these nitrogen fixing plants in between my corn rows to basically make the the nitrogen for my next year corn. And then I'll just move my row over and I'll no-till straight into the year prior year's strip of cover crop. So that's that's been a big advantage is just opening up the corn rows. And, and getting that sunlight to those legumes so they can fix nitrogen for me for my next crop. And it's been very, very successful. Uh, my favorites has been uh, cow peas are definitely my favorite. Um, there are some sun hemp in there, which have been proven to uh, really help with, with Japanese beetle control. They prefer to eat that sun hemp, uh, which is another legume fixer, or a nitrogen fixer that works for me. Um, those Japanese beetles will, will eat in that plant before they eat my silks. So that's, that's uh, been pretty neat to see that nature's, you know, kind of working with me now. Yeah. And you're mentioning your nitrogen a lot. What have you seen these different types of cover crops doing for your soil health specifically? So that's, you know, it's all visuals right now. Obviously um, I did do a Haney test. Uh, I don't know. A lot of guys have heard of that, but it's, it's more of a soil health test and it can look at all your organic uh, fertilizers in your soil. And so last year 
you know, the first year I started using the cover crops in this field and compared to this year, my organic fertilizer in the soil has, has gone up quite a bit. And also they can measure the micro population and it's nearly doubled in one year. And we all know how powerful microbes can be. And that's just using cover crops. That's not applying any kind of snake oils or anything like that. That's all just the power of diversity is, is feeding those microbes and kind of waking them up. And, you know, obviously they, you get more microbes, they're going to, you know, feed your, your cash crop. And, and that's, you know, obviously what I'm after is, is getting a good cash crop. Well, absolutely, Eric. It has been really interesting to sit in on this conversation with you. But before we let you get back to the farm, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you on social media? Yeah, I've been pretty much just putting everything um, on Twitter uh, at 60 Inch Corn Farmer. I'm starting to post a few videos on YouTube um, under Eric Miller. And uh, yeah, I need to do a little better job of, of taking more photos and videos and getting them online and, and showing guys what, what the power of, of uh, nature can be when you, when you put it to work for you. Again, guys, that is Eric Miller, a farmer out of Northeast Iowa. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, again, a big thank you there to Eric. Really interesting stuff. I tell you what, Ashton, we didn't even get to talk at all about some of his recent projects looking at uh, creating barley for malt purposes, Uh, but we'll have to have him back on sometime to talk about those things. We certainly will, and I bet it will be a Friday conversation talking about malting. But other than that, you can always keep up with us on social media at Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can look out for a future episode, hopefully, with Eric again on our website at agnewsdaily.com. And you can also look at past web or past episodes. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let him go.